Welcome back to this study of church history presented by Dr. David Stafford. This presentation will go through the history of the church founded by Jesus Christ on the mountain. When we left off last week, we um, had finished the persecution of the Roman emperors, and we're starting with the fall of Rome. Um, just a little bit of recap. We remember that um, under the Roman emperors, the church or Christians would have a back and forth flow of acceptance within Rome. And within a very short period of time, the accepted type of Christianity was not what we practice, but it was of the Catholic variety, and that was the only thing that they saw and claimed to be true Christianity. Anyone that stepped outside of the realm of what the Catholics said were considered heretics. And we talked about some of the brutality in which the um, Roman emperors dealt with the early Christians. But as we see the fall of Rome, we're going to see the persecution continues, but the agent of that persecution is no longer going to be the Roman government. It's going to be the Catholic Church. And the persecution that we saw under the Roman government is nothing compared to the persecution that's about to get started. Um, because when the popish religion gained power and she began to stretch her legs, she showed no mercy to anyone that was outside of what they deemed and what they declared to be right. Now, we talked about how that Rome started as a republic, and over a course of time there was uh, men who rose up and took over control of the Senate, and that began the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire stretched out over a course of a large number of emperors, uh, some were good, some were bad, some were strong, some were weak. And at the conclusion of the Roman Empire, what had happened was that first off there became a great division, and the Roman Empire was divided up into basically two different nations. And it was the West, which was Rome, and the East, which was centered at Constantinople and was to the East. And the Roman section of the Roman Empire is what fell. And when this occurs, we see something that happened in that the Eastern Empire continued to function. And it continued to function for a large number of years, and then eventually it becomes the Byzantine Empire. And it stays pretty solidified with a centralized government. But the West fell apart. Now, what were the factors that led to the fall of Rome? was a couple of things, not the least of which was Christianity itself. Um, one of the things was, if you look at historians and they list the causes of the fall of Rome. Well, first off, when they moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople, there became a huge battle um, financially and economically between the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. 
And at that point in time, the Eastern Empire was able to sell more goods. They had a much stronger pathway to get to China and to get spices and materials and fabrics and things of that nature to sell. So they had a lot more um, mercantile establishment that they were able to fall on for economics than did the Western Empire. Um, also, there were attacks from the non-Roman people, the Gauls, um, the, the Saxons, which are the Nordic people. They, they were all coming down and attacking readily along the borders of the Western Empire. And over time, they weakened the Roman army. As the Roman army began to become more and more weak, what occurred was that they were spending so much time protecting their boundaries that civil government at home was beginning to fall apart, meaning that there were people who were growing in power outside of the centralized government. So these people that were growing in power had it in their mind that they wanted to take over these little kingdoms and control those. So the Roman government fell, and it, the begin of or the beginning of the Dark Ages is usually looked at as being 476. Odacer, and I'm sure I'm slaughtering that, became the first king of Italy. And that was the first time in the Roman Empire that a independent group was able to take control of Roman land. And it signified that the Roman Empire in the western part had become so weak that they couldn't protect their homeland. So when he took Italy, everything else fell apart and the Roman government just ceased to exist. Now, in our minds, we have a hard time understanding what that means. And, you know, I have often made the joke that you know, our United States government shuts down every now and then for budget, and it'll sit down, you know, shut down for three weeks, six weeks, however long, and everything still functions just like normal, right? But that's a partial shutdown. In this situation, everything stopped. There were no police. There was no road crews. There was no civil authority as far as courts. There was nothing. Okay, so roads and travel became increasingly difficult over the course of the first decade after the fall of, and the collapse of the Roman Empire. Now, you think about if you take a road out here today that is paved with asphalt and you don't do anything to it for 10 years, well, it's going to get in pretty rough shape, right? Even an asphalt road. It's going to have potholes, and if you drive over it, you're going to blow a tire. Well, imagine if you had roads that were made out of cobblestone, was made out of trees that they had, would cut down and cut in two and lay out to make a road and you would drive on. Imagine those type roads that are not being tended over a course of a thousand years. Things got very drastic very quickly. Also, even though we think about the Roman government as being this big dictator, and it was, but there were also um, institutions set in place that provided help and support to poor people, even under the Roman Empire. But when the Roman Empire fell, that was all gone. 
So these people basically went from having a structured life. It may not have been a prosperous life, but they had structure in their lives. They knew that if something happened to them that they could go to an authority and that authority could try to help them in getting done what they needed done. Well, after the government fell, there was nothing. You were on your own, literally. So what happened were men that had wealth and had power, they began to form fiefdoms, which basically, to simplify this, around their land, they would take people in and they would say, if you work for me, I will provide you a living. And so they set up these little fiefdom kingdoms and would gradually expand out in territory and authority. All right? So if you think back on some of the movies that you've watched about knights and this and that during the medieval times and they're building the cathedrals and all of this type stuff, the only centralized or the only type of government that they could see in their lives was the Catholic Church. And remember back, I don't know if it was last Wednesday or the Wednesday before, it was last Wednesday, when we talked about the Council of Nicaea, and we talked about how that Constantine came down in his robes, and he came with all of his jewels on, and it was glittering, and he told the church that he wanted to restructure the government of the church. And he wanted the government of the church to mimic the government of Rome. And he said, so on top, we're going to put the patriarch of the church at Rome, the papa, the pope, and then beneath him, we're going to have cardinals, and then we're going to have archbishops, bishops, priests, deacons, and on down canons, and there's a whole list of different ordained levels within the Catholic clergy. And each one of those answers to the man that's above them to the man that's above them, all the way to the Pope. So I'm going to stress here that we know <clears throat> that if you have no government, you have nobody to look to, we as people like to have some form of security in our lives. So when these people looked around, the only security they saw was the church the Catholic Church, because it was still functioning. It was still moving. It was still had the cathedral or the church of their local community, and they were able, they were the only people that still had a mail service because the church had their own system of communicating and sending word from one church to the next church. So they were still functioning even though nothing else was. So these people, just the common everyday peasant, became more and more reliant upon the Catholic Church because it was the only source they could see of security. Okay? Now, with that, the people began to lose control of everything, but the Catholic Church got more and more and more powerful. When they became more powerful, they began to twist on the people to subject them and make them exactly what they wanted them to be. They began to levy taxes. Now, they got tax money from 
the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is gone, so the church still needs money. So the church levied taxes, taxes on the communities that that local church building was in. Remember that they believed that the church is universal. And when they would collect the money, then that church would take part of that money to send up to their archbishop. The archbishop would take part of that money to send up to the pope, and it just all flowed up, okay? If any of you know what a Ponzi scheme is, that's basically what they were doing. You would get money at the bottom, and you'd filter it up the pyramid. That's how the church functioned. And they did that by force. Remember that the Pope at this time has already issued that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. So he's already decreed that if you are not within the Catholic Church and within our doctrines, you are going to die and go to hell. And the Pope had authority to say, Corey, I don't like what you're doing. You're excommunicated. You're going to hell. Now, he had no power to do that, of course. He was just a man. He was no better than any of us. In fact, honestly, we're doing a whole lot better than he. But that was what they taught the peasant people. Okay? So the church became more and more important in the lives of your normal, everyday European citizen. Okay? The other thing that occurred at this point in time was that the church began to go farther and farther into idolatry. By the church, I'm meaning the Catholics. And we see, we've already talked about the two sets of heretical twins when they changed church government. They took on the universal church theory. Then they went to baptismal regeneration. And they went to infant baptism. Well, that's bad enough if you stop there because you're losing salvation, you're losing both of the ordinances, and everything falls apart. But just like we said the other day, once you begin to dabble in these sins and you become more and more powerful, absolute power corrupts. So this organization that was getting more and more powerful began to corrupt more and more things. Now, we talked about Mariology, or Mariology, yeah, I guess I said it right the first time. And that was their worship and adoration of Mary, the mother of Christ. And we talked about how that they discussed and they decided that she wasn't the mother of Christ's earthly body, but that she was the mother of God, which is complete heresy. God was in, in existence long before she was and how that was already beginning to occur. By 300, Catholics began to pray for the souls of their dead family, friends, and loved ones. Now, we know that when you die, it's over. This life is your preparation ground. You have from birth to the grave to live a life to find the Lord, to get saved, and to serve Him. 
If you die and you haven't been saved, you go to hell. If you die and you have been saved, you go to heaven. But once you die, that's it. There's no hope. Ecclesiastes 11 and 3, If the cloud be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree falleth towards the south or towards the north, in that place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. If you're lost when you die, you're, you go to hell. If you're saved when you die, you go to heaven. Cut and dry. But the Catholics began to teach that if someone dies and you're not sure about them, then you can pray for them in effect where they are. Okay? Now, at first, they didn't teach purgatory. They still taught heaven and hell, but they taught if you pray hard enough, if you donate enough money to the church, their own doctrine, not mine, then in their name, you donate money in their name, then we might be able to get them out of hell and send them on to heaven. Okay? Complete and total damnable heresy. There is no hope once you die. Okay? So they began to focus on that. And then in 375, that's when they began to adore dead saints, as they called them. So this is when they began to look at their own clergy and the popes, and they said, you know, he was a really good man, and I believe that we believe as the Catholic Church that they have a special place before God. And they go through this whole process of proving that they have done a miracle and that they could prove that the Holy Spirit worked in their lives and they would declare them a saint. So basically, they are adoring the dead. Now, why? Well, all of this goes back to pagan religion. Rome had for centuries worshipped the dead. So when they began to adopt all of these things into the Catholic Church, the sole reason to do it was to appeal to more people, give the people what they wanted to hear, rather than the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. They wanted to feel warm and fuzzy about religion. And you know, the same thing occurs today. Other denominations, they want to appeal to the emotions and to the body. The same thing the Catholic Church did. Appeal to emotions and the body. The church is not about emotions in the body. The church is about spirituality and the indwelling of Christ. And our working with the Spirit. All right? Now, it was probably somewhere around 1200 when the doctrine of purgatory became doctrine set in stone amongst the Catholic Church. But purgatory had a start that started very slow and began to spread. Now, the reason that they came up with purgatory was it was really hard to take the Scripture and explain if you're in hell that you're going to come out of hell because the Scripture is very clear you don't come out of hell except for judgment. So how are they going to do that? Well, what they had to do is they had to make a whole new place into their own so that they could explain what happened. 
So, and this has got to come back up. So this is an important thing that we're covering right here. They began to teach that there was a difference between mortal sins and temporal sins. A mortal sin was basically Ten Commandments. You kill someone, you're automatically going to hell. You can't get forgiveness. A temporal sin was something that they thought was earthly and it was you only suffered for a short period of time. This would be... Um, sexual misconduct, for example, adultery, fornication, um, slavery. These types of things were considered temporal sins. And if you had temporal sins in your life that you haven't been forgiven for, instead of going to hell, you go to purgatory. And in purgatory, if you're in purgatory, people can pray you out of purgatory or buy you out of purgatory and let you go to heaven, or lessen the amount of time that you spend in purgatory. None of that is anywhere in that book. It's not there. It is completely a fiction of man's imagination, and it was a heresy that they sold to the people that didn't know any better, because guess what they weren't allowed to have? The Bible. They weren't allowed to have the scriptures. The scriptures were reserved for priests. Now they did that for two or three reasons. Now the most benign reason is that scriptures were expensive. Okay? Because you have to remember in 500 AD and 1000 AD there was no such thing as a printing press. So any scripture book had to be written by hand. It had to be handwritten every page, every word. So to actually own a book was something special because they were rare, because they cost tons and tons of money. Now the other issue was, number two, even if they had a Bible, what were they going to do with it? They couldn't read it in the first place. And even if they could read the language they spoke, the Bible was written in Latin. So it still wouldn't help them. And the third reason, which I think is the true reason why they didn't let them have the gospel, was because as long as they didn't know what the Bible said, they could tell them what it said and make it up on their own. They had no rebuttal on anything that they said because the only gospel that any person at this time heard came from the priest standing before them at Mass. That was it. Which leads us to the daily Mass. The daily Mass came about somewhere, it was already beginning to be practiced in 394. Um, by th uh, 430, it was pretty solidly accepted. Now, what is daily Mass? You have two high masses. That is on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Those are obligatory. Obligatory. Let me try that again. Obligatory. Meaning that every Catholic is supposed to attend Mass once a week. And you've got a choice. We're not going to make it too hard on you. You can come Saturday night or Sunday morning. All right? 
But then they also decided that, you know, if we really want to keep control of people, we need to control what they're thinking and what they're hearing every single day. So they began to hold church services every day. So every day they would have a short mass. Today, a full mass is an hour and a half, two hours, I'm told. And from the only Catholic wedding I've been to, it seemed like much longer than that. But an hour, hour and a half. And then the daily mass takes about 30 minutes. It's a micro religion. They give it to you quick, take up a donation, and send you out the door. But they also make you take the Eucharist, but, which is their version of the Lord's Supper, which we'll get to in just a second. So the daily mass. Secondly, they began to have wax candles in the churches. Now, wax candles also goes back to paganism. If you walk into a Catholic church today, most of the time when you walk in the front door, the first thing you're going to see when you walk into the sanctuary in the foyer is a baptistry. And we're going to talk about baptistries in some of the churches that we draw lineage from. And when they had a baptistry, it was big, the size of this platform up here. And just as deep, probably up about waist. Why? Because they immerse you fully. In Catholic churches, you have a basin of water because they just pour it or sprinkle it over whoever they're baptizing. Then somewhere over either to the left or to the right, there's going to be a bank with all of these tiers. And on those tiers are going to be candles. And then they're going to have a box with a slit in it to drop your money in and some matches. And what you do is if you want to pray for mama who died because you're afraid she's in purgatory, you drop a dollar in the box, take your candle or, or your match, light the match, say a little prayer and light a candle, and that candle carries your prayer for the rest of the day in their belief. So even though you're not praying for her, the candle is still lit and the candle is praying for her. Okay? Because it's your fault in the candle. Can you think of anything more foolish? Just pure and simple superstition is all it is. Superstition. We already talked about the worship and adoration of Mary. By 500, it had become commonplace for Catholic priests to dress differently than everybody else. It was a uniform code that if you were ordained, you didn't dress like everybody else dressed. You dressed differently. At this point in time, it was usually a cassock, which is the robe they would wear, and they would wear a tie around it, depending on how high up in the hierarchy of the church. The higher you went, the fancier your clothing got. Even at this point in time, when you got to be Pope, you got a gold ring, you got gold jewelry, you had a three-tiered crown, that big crown that he wears, the gold one, not the one made out of fabric, and etc., etc., etc. Okay? Why? 
because they wanted everyone, when they saw someone that was ordained, they wanted him immediately to be visible that he was above everybody else. He was separate. He was better than the common person. All right? Um, it is unfathomable how far the Catholic Church went in a matter of 500 years. Now, when we stop and we think about that, it almost seems impossible. But if you go back and you look even at the Baptist churches in Macon County and Sumner County, and you look at those that are no longer numbered with us, and look over the course of 50 years, if you go back to 1970, and you look at what they practiced in 1970 versus what they practice today, it's a completely different plan of salvation. People in 1970 were still getting experimental salvation taught to them in Methodists, in Presbyterians, in General Baptists, in Southern Baptists, in the Nazarene, in the Church of God, on and on and on. By 2020, we're about it. You've got a few General Baptists holding on. You've got a few Church of God that are holding on to an experimental knowledge of salvation. But that's about it. Everyone else has gone to a mental acceptance that Christ was a historical figure. Okay? So if they went that far in 50 years, imagine how far they're going to be in 450 more years. So even though it seems just unbelievable, churches in our backyard have gone just about as far in a lot fewer years. Okay? Now, after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, so the 400s, the true church was basically beaten into submission as far as being in the public. In most areas, the church was driven underground. They were forced to hold meetings in their houses, forced to hold meetings in groves, in caves, anywhere that they could that they would not be seen by other people. Because all it took was for someone to go down to the local parish and talk to a priest and say, I think there's a group of Baptists meeting over there. And the Catholics would rain down terror until they found them all. And not only found them, but killed them. So, it's just unbelievable how far we've gotten. Now, the persecution after the collapse of the Roman Empire, once again, we need to stress, was more harsh than it was under the Roman Empire. And as we go into our next section and we talk about the Dark Ages, we're going to see that. Now, while I'm here, I want to give you about three things to explain how we're going to look at the Dark Ages. First off, I want to tell you that Baptists are the only people, religious institution, that 100% believes 
and a freedom of consciousness. In other words, whatever you want to believe, you have the right to believe it. We don't force anyone to be a Baptist. The only religion that has ever done that is us. We don't force anyone into making a profession for Christ. We don't force anyone to be baptized. And we have always taught and believed in toleration in that as long as you weren't hurting us and as long as you weren't hurting other people, you're free to believe whatever it is you want to believe. You may be wrong, and we're going to tell you you're wrong, but we're not going to force you to change your mind. And that is a Baptist belief that has followed the church all the way from the beginning. Jesus never forced anyone to believe in Him. Never. And the church has followed suit. Okay? Secondly, even though I know that we're talking about the Catholic Church, I will tell you that probably 90%, and of course it's true, 88% of statistics are made up on the spot, right? I don't know what percentage it is of the Catholic Church, but a large percent, more than half, of members of the Catholic Church who are active, practicing Catholics, if you were to tell them some of the things that the Catholic Church has done to people outside of their religion, they would tell you you were lying. They would have never done that, but they did. So even though we're talking about the Catholic Church, I want you to understand that I have no animosity towards any particular person. But what the Church of Rome has done is what we're looking at. And yes, I pray regularly that people who are caught up in the heresies of this world will come out from Babylon and leave that mess alone and find the Lord. But I'm not going to force them to do that. It's not my place. Because they have freedom to make their own mind of how they're going to worship and what they're going to worship. Okay? Even Paul... When he went up and he went there amongst the pantheon and he preached about the unknown God, he didn't force any of them. He just told them the truth and left it to fall where it may. And throughout all time, the true believers of Christ have done the very same thing. They professed the truth and then left you to work out your own salvation. Okay? The Dark Ages, as we start this, we're going to look at a few of the names that our ancestors probably went by. And we're going to talk about them individually. And then after we finish talking about them individually, we will back up and talk about the persecutions, more specifically, that they endured. Okay? Because most of the persecutions were widespread. It wasn't just a particular group. So I, I feel it's probably more important for you to get an understanding of what each group was and where they were and how they functioned and then go back and talk about the persecutions. Okay? So with that said, we are starting on part three. And Hassel there, I'm going to read that quote. 
Among the persecuted people of God have been the Novatians, the Donatists, the Cathari, Paterans, Polyseans, Petrobrusians, Henricans, Arnoldists, Albigenses, Waldenses, Lollards, Mennonites, and Baptists, nearly all of whom were occasionally designated Anabaptists or rebaptizers by their enemies. Because they disregarded infant or unregenerated baptism and baptized all adults, whether previously baptized or not, who upon a credible profession of faith applied to them for membership in their churches, thus insisting on a spiritual and regenerate church membership, the first and most important mark of the apostolic church. All of these people that we are talking about, and if they don't, I'm going to tell you, they taught and believed that before you are baptized, you have to have had an experience of salvation. Something that the rest of the Christian Catholic world has forgotten all about. Okay? And they believe that baptism was by full immersion. And there's a course of other things that we'll go through here, and we will illustrate what they believed. The second thing I want to remind you is that as the first group we're going to talk about, the Polyseans, that not everybody that was classified as a Polysean was their ancestor. Okay? I don't know what percentage of them were. But when you look at the teachings of this group, it is obvious that they had been influenced by people who taught just like we do. And I know I use the analogy of Baptist in Middle Tennessee. If we looked at Middle Tennessee and we said, right now, and we are 100 years from now, we're archaeologists and anthropologists, and we're saying, what did Baptists believe in 2020 in Macon County? Well, they wouldn't just look at missionary Baptists. They would look at everybody that called themselves Baptist. So the doctrine would not look like what the true church's doctrine looks like. Y'all with me? And we're going to find that as we go into these groups. All right? Now, the time between 500 to 1500 is, of course, known as the Dark Ages. It is often um, characterized and called the Dark Ages, the Devil's Millennium. There's a whole slew of different names through history that this period has been talked about and has been named. Generally, it begins with the fall of the Roman Empire and ends with what the uh, with the Protestant Reformation. When the Protestant Reformation begins, that's basically generally when we say the Dark Ages ends. So 500 to 1500 is the Dark Ages. It is a time of cruelty in a time when Baptist blood was shed freely, and it poured. In comparison to what happened before the Catholic Church took control, if that was a drip during the Dark Ages, it literally was raining like it is outside. 
with the blood of the saints. The Polyseans is the first group I want us to look at. The Polyseans were probably most prominent within the area of Armenia. Um, Armenia is just west of the Black Sea. Um, it is east of Pergama, Smyrna, and Galatia, north of Syria, still today. That's the area north of the country of Syria. Um, and the attention of the Catholics first drew attention upon the Polyseans around 650. Um, and that was by a man by the name of Constantine, not the emperor, just a normal guy. Constantine lived in Armenia, and there was a deacon from the true church that came and um, spent the night. He was traveling, and at this point in time, if you were traveling, there wasn't hotels, and when it got dark, you would find a house somewhere, and you'd ask for lodging, and they would lodge you. So he came to this man by the name of Constantine's house, and Constantine gave this old deacon a lot of hospitality, treated him well, fed him. They had good conversations. And when this old deacon left, he gave Constantine a New Testament in its original language. And it just happened that Constantine could speak Hebrew and could read Hebrew. That by itself, I'm sorry, not Hebrew, Greek. Greek, thank you. I don't know if somebody said that or if it just popped in my head. Greek, he could speak Greek and read Greek. Now, that by itself is an act of God, that this occurrence occurred, that he was able to get the Scripture in a language that he was able to read because the Scripture was so rare. It was immensely valuable in both spiritual aspects and financial money aspects. And this Constantine began to study, he began to read, and as he began to read this, he began to realize that everything that he had been taught was wrong. That the things that he had been taught by the Catholic Church did not add up, the Scripture did not support infant baptism. It did not support um, all of the teachings that they had. And he decided that he wanted to know more. And after reading this for some time, he remembered that that old deacon told him of a church that he went to. So he took off to find this group of people called Polyseans. I don't know what they called themselves probably church or Christians or whatever. But he went and found them, and when he got there, he began to attend their services and listen to the preaching. And before long, just as many of us have the same testimonies, he began to be convicted. He fell under conviction, and he had an experience of salvation where trouble came in, he prayed, the trouble went away, and peace came in his heart. He had an experimental knowledge of salvation. At that point in time, he united with the Polition Church. And remember that they wouldn't take you unless you had an experience. And we've said already that they not only wanted you to say what God done for you, but they stressed, we want to know where you were when it happened, a time and place. 
Now, some of the critics say that they stress that too much. It's possible. Uh, that's probably just an undue criticism. But they wanted you to be able to say, just like, was it a sycamore tree or an olive tree that he was under? And the Lord said, I saw you. I can't remember who he was talking about, under the tree. They wanted you to know where you were. A time and place to say, this is when I got saved. Okay? Now, Milner, who wrote the history of the Church of Christ, and he says this about the Polyseans. I see reason to suppose that the Polyseans to have been perfect originals. In regard to any other denomination of Christians, the little that has already been mentioned concerning them carries entirely this appearance. And I hope it may shortly be evident that they originated from a heavenly influence, teaching and converting them, and that in them we have one of those extraordinary effusions of the divine spirit by which the knowledge of Christ and the practice of godliness is kept alive in the world. Milner, by the way, was not a Baptist. This primitive sect of Christians who had already, by the time 650, endured hatred from Rome is still functioning even though they knew that if they preached openly that they were going to be harassed, but they continued to do so. And they preached and they spoke of the gospel everywhere that they could go. Now, why are they called Polyseans? There are a couple of different reasons given. Some historians say it was from an early uh, leader that was named Paul, the most consensus among the researchers is that they were called Polyseans or Polesians because they put a huge emphasis on the works of the Apostle Paul. These people were missionary-minded, meaning that they didn't pass up an opportunity to try to spread the word. And it was customary amongst these people that if you were called to preach that you took the name of a character or a person that was mentioned within the works of talking about Paul, okay? Secondly, they also very almost, almost always named their churches after a location that was named in the works and ministry of Paul, okay? So that's probably why they had so much of an emphasis looking to them and they were called Polyseans. Now, Constantine, as we had talked before, he began to spread the gospel. And one of the things that occurred was there was a man by the name of Silvanus. Silvanus was um, sent to kill Constantine. And um, when he went down there, there were a group of people that were there that were Polyseans, and the army that was with him gave them the opportunity. He said, here's the deal. This is your pastor. Any of you that want to be forgiven of falling out of the true religion, the Catholic religion, 
All you have to do is stone this man to death and you will be forgiven. Any of you that don't stone him, we're going to kill. And of this great multitude of, of believers that was there, only one of them picked up a stone and threw it repeatedly and killed this preacher. The rest of them, of course, were found guilty and were killed. This soldier that was leading this group was so convicted by the way that this preacher died and the fortitude of all of these other men that it wore heavy upon his heart, fell under conviction, and he got saved. Very similar to the story or the uh, account, Paul's testimony, isn't it? Paul goes out and he, he, he has Stephen and then he gets under conviction and he has letters to, uh, for the arrest of the, of, the, of the church and then he falls under conviction and he gets saved. Much like this man here. Now, the church itself, some of the things that they were absolutely disgusted with with the Catholics, first off, they believed that the worship of God, of Christ and our Heavenly Father should be without images. They went back to the Ten Commandments and they say, we are taught not to make images before God. And all of these images, they said, that the Catholic Church is bringing into worship by putting crucifixes and crosses and already having artwork on the walls of past um, the, the saints, the apostles, all of those people, they said that is idol worship. And guess what? They were right. Yeah. It is idol worship. And while we're here, I'll go ahead and go here. These early people were absolutely revolted by the thought of a man thinking that he could portray Christ in an image. It revolted them because Christ in their minds was so much greater than what we could ever put in a picture. And also they had enough clarity of mind to realize that if you put Christ in a picture that people are no longer going to worship who he was and worship that image. And they absolutely rejected all depictions of previous Christians, of the cross, of the crucifixion, of Christ, etc. Sometimes we're guilty. Okay? Sometimes we're, we're guilty of forgetting that when we make idols, sometimes it's with an innocent mind and a good intention, but that picture of Christ is still not something that we need to do, okay? Now, that steps on toes, I know, but I, I think the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments, okay? So those pictures of Christ that we have, and sometimes you walk in churches and they have them, I, this is a Staffordism, I don't think they need to be there. It doesn't have a place. And our early forefathers, as we go through this, they boldly said, you don't need to have it because you worship Christ with the Spirit, 
not with your carnal body, not with these eyes, not with this body, but it is a spiritual worship of Christ. And if you appeal to the body, you are going to end up appealing to sin rather than worshiping Christ, okay? They also were taught against the sacraments. Now, we need to explain this real quick, what the sacraments were. Now, we have ordinances, and we have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to see that eventually the Catholic Church develops seven sacraments. Now, a sacrament is different than an ordinance because a sacrament is an act or a ceremony that bestows grace. Okay? They believe that baptism, communion or the Lord's Supper, marriage, confession, um, there's three more, and we'll get there because I can't name them off the uh, unction. We'll get there. But by performing those sacraments, grace is imparted to you. Okay? By being baptized, confirmation, by being baptized, you have grace applied to you, meaning that you gain salvation through being baptized. You gain salvation through taking part of what they call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and you gain salvation by marrying another Catholic. You gain salvation by having the last rite or unction performed over you. Okay? All of these sacraments are what bring you closer to God. Rather than faith, it's all by works. Okay? Now, the sacrament that the Polyseans really, now they didn't like any of it, but the thing that really got their goat, sort of say, was the Lord's Supper. Because at this point in time, transubstitution was already coming about. Now, what that is, it's this. It is the belief that is still taught today within the Catholic Church that when they provide communion, the Lord's Supper, and when the priest prays over the host, as they call it, the bread, which, by the way, are usually made out of a machine and already stamped out with a cross on it, but when they pray over that, they teach and believe that that wafer literally becomes the flesh of Jesus Christ. They don't teach it figuratively. They say literally it becomes his flesh. That cup of wine, grape juice, whatever, when that priest blesses that cup, it is no longer filled with wine or grape juice. It becomes the literal blood of Jesus Christ. Now, people, once again, superstition. Pure superstition. And the Polyseans repeatedly said, listen, that is still bread and it's still grape juice. You blessing it hasn't changed anything. The Lord's Supper is a uh, symbolic mannerism of the Lord. It's not literal. 
It does not become his flesh in his blood. They openly declared it as being a heathen thought that you were eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Barbaric. Where did it come from? Once again, we're right back to the pagans. The pagans who openly taught in many times of sacrificing humans and then partaking and eating of their flesh. That's where it comes from. And the Catholic Church, once again, knew that if they adopted that, it would appeal to people who had previously been in that. And it's still there today. The Polyssians said, no way. That is a symbolic ceremony, and it is only to be observed within the church and by regenerated, baptized believers. Now, they took closed communion very seriously. Each local independent body, for the most part, would only serve the Lord's Supper to members of that local independent body. Just like today, in fact, when I've, I've read some of this, I've often chuckled and laughed because they're still kind of like us. Some churches say this local independent body, the church down the road, they would say, as long as you're a member of a church of like faith and order, we'll serve you. Okay? Don't have a problem either way. Some of them, closed communion was, when they said closed, they meant closed. And some of them was like faith and order. Okay? But nobody else. That's where the problem came. Because Catholics would show up at the Polysian church and they would refuse to serve them the Lord's Supper. And then they had enough gall, this little hillbilly bunch of preachers and whatever you call them over there, had enough gall not to come ask the bishop to come out there and ordain their preachers. They did it themselves. And it offended the Catholics. And did it offend them? they began to level war against them in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine. They met with severe persecution. And as they rejected the Eastern Catholics, it is estimated that more than 100,000 of their people were put to death by the Greek sovereign within a matter of five years. 100,000. And most likely that is an underestimate. Okay? Christian, in his history, explained that the Polyssians were eventually exiled from the Greek territory. In 970, the emperor of Byzantine, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, forcibly moved 200,000 Polyssians from their homeland in Armenia. They rounded them up forced them away from their homes with his army, put them on the road out of the entire kingdom, and set them off. They were able to take what they could carry, and that was it. The stories of these men, women, children, babies being herded up and led down the road, old people, 
not able to walk, and them falling, and the armies forcing them to keep moving, and just leaving those people that were weak on the side of the road to die. Completely heartless. If a child tripped and fell, they left them. If you wanted to go back or you fault them about trying to get the child up and moving, they killed you. Brutality that we cannot even imagine. Forced out of their homeland for one reason, because they believed in a purity of the gospel. Okay? A vast number of these people settled in Philopolis, which is in Thrice, the southern part of Bulgaria. And it was in this place that the Polyseans met up with another group of people. And if you'll look at your map, some of them are in color, some of them aren't. Uh, I think it's on both, but inside your uh, pamphlet. You see here where the Polyseans were down here. They get forced out. They cross the up here and they up, up north of Constantinople. They meet with this group in Bulgaria. And there, there was this group of people called the Bogomils. And guess what they found? They were just like they were. Now, oftentimes when people talk about this map, they talk about how that the Polyseans started here and they spread their religion as they moved. But that's actually not accurate. As they began to move, as they settled in these new areas, they met with people that were of like faith and order of them, that they only varied on very few things of doctrine. And they were able to work those out and come together and unite as one people. And the Polyseans and the uh, Bogomils were like that. All right? Moshe, I'm talking about this people, says, From Italy, the Polyseans sent colonies into almost all the other provinces of Europe and formed gradually a considerable number of religious assemblies who adhered to their doctrine and who realized every opposition and indignity from the popes. It is undoubtedly certain from the most authentic records that a considerable number of them were about the middle in the, of the 11th century settled in Lombardia, in Serbia, but principally in Milan and that many of them led, in wandering, led a wandering life in France, Germany, and other countries where they captivated the esteem and admiration of the multitudes by their sanctity. In Italy, they were called Patrini and Cathari. In France, they were denominated Bulgarians from the kingdoms from which they emigrated, and publicans instead of Paulicians or Paulicians, and bona humanus, which means good men, but were chiefly known by the term of Albigenses, from the town of Alba in the upper part of the, uh, the, the mountain range. The first religious assembly which the Polyseums formed in Europe is said to have been at Orleans in the year 1017. The Polyseans even made their way all the way into the British Isles. And there was a number of Polyseans that grouped and settled in Oxford, England around 1160. 
All right? Henry II, king of England, ordered the Paulicians to be branded on their foreheads with a cross, that they were to be stripped of all their lands, that they were to be exiled and publicly whipped, and that under penalty of death, anyone who gave them aid or succor, food, were to be executed without any forgiveness. So basically what he did, these people had been exiled everywhere that they've gone. Henry II, because that they would not conform to his established religion, forced them out of his kingdom. Now the thing that I haven't told you was that it was in the dead of winter. They were stripped of all lands, all belongings, and they had on what clothes they had on. Some of them, when they were, were beaten, were stripped, and they forced them to leave their communities, and they were not allowed to have anybody to let them inside their town. These people froze to death on roads in the mountains, in the valleys, without anybody helping them. Literally froze to death. There is an account where one man said that he saw a group of them after they had already frozen, and it was a family, and you could see, he recalls that you could see the tears on the mother's face as she was frozen, holding her baby in her arms, with the husband trying to keep them warm. All because they would not conform to the Catholic religion. The Paulicians claimed to be a direct lineage from the Church of Jerusalem. They did not claim any association with the Catholics. They stated in their own words that we are not Catholic, we have never been Catholic, because we go back to Jerusalem. The Catholics were a separate branch, and they have gone awry in with Satan, and we're not of them, and have never been of them, just like us today. We were never of Catholics. They practiced full immersion, offered baptism only to those who had testimonies of being regenerated by grace. They refused to accept the baptism of Catholics. If a Christian came and wanted to join that had been baptized, they would investigate their baptism to decide whether or not they would receive it. As a rule of their faith, they accepted both the Old and the New Testament, and they opposed all innovations of the Catholic Church. The biggest critique of this group of people is that the Catholics will tell you that they were dualist in their theology or Manichaeism. And let's real quickly explain what Manichaeism and dualist in theology is. Because as we look at these sects, that is what the Catholics always accuse these people of being. In the East, there was a group of people who taught a dualist religion. What they taught was that there were two gods. There was a good God and an evil God, and that those two gods had equal power, and that they controlled the world, okay, and were constantly battling with one another. 
All right? Now, we're going to see that even though that's what the Catholics said that they were, even the Catholic writers of hundreds of years from them repeatedly said they're not. Neander, who, by the way, was no friend of Baptists, um, in his history wrote, We find nothing at all, however, in the doctrines of the Paulicians, which would lead us to presume that they were an offshoot from Manchurianism. Or, uh, on the other hand, we find much which contradicts such a super, uh, superposition. Yeah. So even he, who was not a lover of the Baptist, said that this group that the Baptists claim lineage to, they're not what the Catholics said they were. George Faber, who was an Anglican, goes as far as to say that they had a pure and unadulterated Christianity that was of a primitive nature. So even their own writers said that these people aren't what they accused them of. Now, today we have um, several pieces of work that is said to go back to the Polyseans. This is one of them. Frederick Cornwallis Conabry. He was a British theologian and professor at University of Oxford, and he was also an, uh, a member or a bishop of the Order of the Corporate Reunion. In other words, he's what we would call today an old Catholic organization. Um, he accused them of being, the Paulicians, a dualist, and he published this book, which is a translation of the Key of Truth, which um, he claims is writings of the Paulicians. Even if you read this, and I've read part of it, and I have not read all of it, I've read the parts that I've heard him quote or I've read of him quoting. When you read this, it still doesn't exactly portray what he says it portrays. Um, it's not something, if we read it today and we said, were these people Baptist? Eh, probably not, okay? There was a lot of things that are real similar to us and some things that they're real squirrely on, okay? But out of all of the works of these people, this is the only one that survived. Now, let me ask you a question. If the Catholics allowed this to survive, what do you think it said? What they wanted to prove, right? Otherwise, they would have destroyed it too. So, is it ancient and describes part of what some of this group believes? Probably. Is it accurate for what all of these people agreed. Well, let's just be honest. You can't find five churches in Macon County that agree on everything, can you? You can't find two members in this house that agree on everything. So, no, it probably didn't. But that is one of the things that they use as a criticism for this group of people. Now, Mark Pegg is a professor at, professor at Washington University. And in the Journal of Medieval History, he provides a new look and lens 
at looking at this ancient history. And it was from his research that I kind of gleaned. Okay, in academic research, you always have to find somebody that has a theory or an idea of examining history that you say, this is the lens that I'm looking at this history from, okay? And Mark Pegg is the professor that I took his writing because it says basically what we know to be true about these early people. And what he said was about Conabry, okay, yes, good for you. You found one piece of writing that proves what you think, sort of. Big deal, because in any group, ideas, theology, any thought that you want to start takes years and years and years to permeate through everybody that's known in that organization, okay? In other words, Baptists today, not everybody that's Baptist that goes by the word Baptist on their front door believes like we do. That's what he says. That even though you may find one group of people who believe that they were, that believe a dualist thought, that doesn't mean that all of them do. Okay? He further said that an important observation is warranted in that the letters... Trustees, exempla, inquisitorial manner, uh, manuals, sermons, all writings by intellectuals in the Middle Ages that seem to be describing dualist heresies in which always present the ideas of heretics as coherent and articulate in which are used by historians to demonstrate all kinds of dualist heterodox connections actually demonstrate much more powerfully a rigid and inescapable anti-dualism. For want of a better phrase that first developed in developing in the 11th century and reaching fruition by the end of the 13th century, saw the potential for heresy in almost anything that was vaguely dissenting from the church. In other words, anybody that did not believe Catholic doctrine, the Catholics said, they're dualist. What do we do today in our churches? If you don't agree with me, we're going to call you something. What are we going to call you? Liberal. Y'all with me? Anything that doesn't agree with the majority in our churches, we automatically labor, label them as liberal whether they are liberal or not liberal. Why? Because it carries the biggest bang for the buck. Y'all with me? That's what they did, but the biggest bang for the buck was to say they're dualists. All right? Now, I'm not saying that liberals are good. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that's the term that we would use to characterize because it's the biggest bang for the buck. All right? Maybe y'all get me. If not... Come see me and I'll explain it a little further. In addition, he makes the declarative statement that for hundreds of years, they spent time proving that these people were dualist. And even today, there is just as much evidence to say that they believed in a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as there is to believe that they believed that there was a good God and a bad God fighting each other. 
All right? The other thing that we need to remember is who writes the history? The victors. Who was the victor? Who were the people that remained in power? The Catholics. So all of the history that we have, say very little, was written by the Catholics. Which brings us to this one. The concept of heresy according to Cardinal Hoseus. I don't know. H-O-S-I-U-S, however you pronounce that. This is a dissertation from the American University, uh, the American, the Catholic University of America. Um, and it is writing about one of the inquisitors. Today, this is considered one of the great works talking about the Inquisition. And this cardinal that this is talked about is portrayed in this book as a man of great respect by the Catholics. Okay? Everything that this man did resulted in the deaths of thousands of men, women, and children. In this dissertation, this is just the first chapter, and this dissertation today within the Catholic universities is still proclaimed as being one of the great historical works to show our history and how that we suppressed the heretics. Do you know who the heretics were? Us. Us. He was talking specifically about Waldensians and Polyseans. And he killed them by the thousands. By the thousands. We can cover the patrons real quick. May even be able to do the Cathari. The patrons uh, was another group of primitive people who had no connection with the Catholics. This early group was located in the Milan territory of Italy. And Jones said that they said the Christian church ought to consist of only good people. A church had no power to frame any constitutions. It was, had no right to take oaths and was not lawful to kill mankind. A man ought not to be delivered up to officers of justice to be converted. The benefits of society belong to all men and members of it. Faith without works could not save a man. The church ought not to persecute any, even the wicked. The law of Moses was no rule to the Christians. There was no need of priests, especially the wicked ones. The sacraments and orders and ceremonies of the church at Rome were futile, expensive, oppressive, and wicked. With many more such positions accounted to their hierarchy. Now, if we read that today, the biggest one that we would have a problem with is faith without works could not save a man. Other than that, we could probably live with it. Okay? The patrons probably were not exactly what we would call our ancestors. They probably did have an original lineage, but they had several things that they bought into. They were... Um, extreme aesthetics. Now what that means is they gave up all personal belongings, okay? Um, and they were extreme disciplinarians. 
Now, we could do with a lot more discipline in the church today, but they discipline their own bodies, okay? Meaning self-mutilation, self, um, in order that pain led to being closer to Christ, and they would cause themselves pain to be closer to Christ. Um, Bosheim states that there were portions of the Patrians that were a simple continuation of the Polyseans. Um, but we see that a lot of these groups that went by this name were pretty extreme, okay? Some of them were, some of them weren't, a whole lot of them were. One of the things that we do see about this group was that they expected their bishops to be bivocational. What a novel thought. Meaning that their preachers needed to have a job to support themselves. And not only that, but they expected their people and they were predominantly mechanics, weavers, shoemakers, and craftsmen, that if you weren't living an aesthetic life, they gave you the option, if you weren't living the aesthetic life, that you, they would teach you a trade and then expect you to go about and practice that trade out in the community so that you could spread the gospel. We're going to see that again when we get to the Waldensians. But they would teach them a trade so that they could spread the gospel. Okay, Cathari. Cathari was never a particular group of people. Instead, the term Cathari, which means pure ones, was a term that the Catholics basically used to describe everybody that wasn't like them. Okay, um, There was a group of extremists back in the early part, uh, after early part of Christianity within the first couple of decades that were called Cathari, which were extremists to an nth degree. It was considered kind of an insult to call someone a Cathari. Thus, they began to call everybody that was outside of the Church of Rome Cathari. Okay? So they were never a particular group of people, but that word was applied to Donatists, Albigenses, the Polyseans, and all sorts of anybody that was outside of the Catholic Church, okay? And with that being said, it is time to close. We will pick back up with the Bogomils and start out with them. And then we have the Bogomils, the Petrobrusians, the Waldenses, the Albigenses. And then we are ready to begin talking about the persecutions. And I know you're saying, well, it seems like you've already talked about them, but that's a drop in the bucket. Okay? Anybody have any questions or anything before that we might be dismissed? Quick comment, David. Yes, sir. Um, on, the, on the names, yes. the name calling, and the distinction, like, for instance, between the Catholic and the Catholic. Yep. That is not something that died out. Correct. Uh, we have found even in the last few years in Guatemala. In Guatemala, you have Catholic and you have Christian. Right. And in their minds, the two are not anywhere close to the same thing. And, uh, I mean, that's just, you know, now, now when they say Christian, it's a wide-ranging variety, but it is distinguished from Catholicism. Right. And, and they are quick to make that distinction. If you were to uh, call somebody that's a Catholic a Christian, 
and they don't like it, and and vice versa. So, and all throughout history, that's yeah. the way it was. Um, even the term Baptist was not something that we chose ourselves. Um, after we get into uh, Europe, particularly in England. They called us Baptists because we thought everybody needed to be baptized whether you've been baptized or not. It was an insult because we put so much emphasis on baptism. Well, that's just an old group of Baptists over there. It was an insult. And most all of the names that we will talk about were actually insults that started out and then it just stuck. Does that make sense? And so that's the game. The same game has been played for 2,000 years of throwing a name to hope that they could suppress the truth. Very good comment. Someone else? If not, we want to thank you for coming out on this dreary night. We appreciate your attention. And if there's nothing else, those that are seated, if you can and will, if you'd stand together. We'll ask Brother Junior if you wouldn't dismiss us, please. Thank you for listening to this episode of Church History. We'll talk to you next time.